Hi, I'm Marty Grizzani, and this is The Marty Grizzani Show. As a full-time real estate investor and business owner, I have a real fascination of finding the key principles for business success and personal development. This show is a reflection of my personal mission to find out what truly makes somebody successful in business and in life. We will find tools and tactics that they've used to reach those levels. If you're the type of person is not satisfied with average and you have a hunger for learning that will never cease, this show is for you. Welcome to the show. You know, the, the truth is when I read your book, I didn't even know about some of these really interesting ways of increasing not just the, the rent, right? We all know that. That's like a common, you see that in all the books. But Nikita, you don't see a lot of times the decreasing expenses. And, you know, and it's not just, it's like the little things that actually, like you say in the book, add up to huge dollars. And I, before I get started, because I, I want to introduce you, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm very blessed. I've been able to join some very unbelievable organizations who have brought me around people like yourself, who have changed my thinking of, you know, really going bigger. But here's, here's what I think, and here's my theory. And I, I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. I think one of the, uh, one of the unfair advantages, now it used to not be, right? You came to this country in, in 2000, right? At the age of 14. So years ago, an unfair advantage would be to not be born in this country. I think now an unfair advantage is being someone who immigrates to this country because people have perspective or their family has perspective. And a lot of people who are born here, take it for granted. Would you, would you agree with something like that? Like now I know it's crazy, but Mm -hmm. not for everybody, but for the people who really want it or, or can really feel that, do you, does that resonate at all with you? Well, yeah, uh, I believe so because, you know, I think education, um, as Aristotle said, is an ornament and prosperity and a refuge in adversity. So I'm not sure I so agree with the ornamental part of education, but I definitely agree that education is a refuge in adversity. So uh, basically, if you have a different perspective, if you come from, uh, from the background of adversity, uh, you just have more a natural hustle uh, to you that you want to succeed. You want to you see you've seen how it can be, and you also um, have seen how it, how, how it could be. And uh, people immigrate usually to a different country um, in search for a better life. And, um, you know, that's why people come to America. And, but um, unfortunately, people who were born here, as you said, they take some things for granted. They don't realize how good they have it. Mm. Right? So they don't have the same drive to them because it's like life is good, you know. <laughs> life, life <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think... Uh... And it makes a lot of sense. And of course, having the, having the will and the want to, to be better than maybe or, or do better than, uh, you know, our forefathers and our families you know, before and, and, trying to, and trying to increase that. So, yeah, the, the individual I have on the show today, guys, is uh, Nikita Zitov. He's the CEO and owner of City Platt. And uh, I, I'm just a big fan of actually the book the expandability of investment real estate. It, it was one of the first books 
that really opened my eyes on some of the other, just the little things that you can do. First of all, I didn't even know what expandability was and the value add, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, value, yep. value add. And, uh, but let me ask you this because a lot of the people that listen are residential real estate investors, right? They have a, a buy and hold portfolio. They're, they're fix and flippers. They're wholesalers. Maybe they do a little bit of all of it, right? And maybe they're frustrated. They're frustrated with the high management maintenance and in the low cash flow that some of those single families can produce. What was the aha moment for you where you recognized the power and scale of commercial and it just made you, you know, wave bye bye to residential? Do you remember that moment? I'm not sure if I remember that exact moment, but uh, you know, I think it's natural progression that you always strive for bigger and better things. And I was always amazed how you know a small individual like myself can own and, and control like big buildings. You know, when you're sitting on the roof of a 10-story building and you realize that this is mine, this is my grounds underneath me, it's a very surreal feeling, you know, and. So I was just always, uh, again, uh, coming from a background where people usually didn't own anything. Everything was owned by government, uh, for, again, for a uh, small, uh, a human being like myself to be able to own magnificent large buildings. It was, uh, just, uh, like a voice dream come true, you know, so I just uh, always try to progress towards bigger uh, buildings. Yeah. I love that. I think, uh, it, it really, it really is something where you're looking at these buildings from afar thinking, man, how can you ever own it? But then you, you figure out, you know, it's, there's just a couple of things. You, you need to know a couple of things. You need to know how to maybe talk to the right people, believe in yourself, like those little things. And it actually can happen because it's just like you're a human. Nikita, I'm a human. People do this every day. People buy these things every day. It, it, it happens, but you just need to think that you can before before anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So somebody build those buildings. Every building you see built in your city, somebody at some point in time took out the sales and purchase agreement and wrote right. a contract to purchase the plant and then took out another contract and contracted with people to build it, got a loan, raised money. Um, so it's if you have ability to use a telephone and contract with other people, then then you you can do those buildings. You can you can own those buildings. You can build those buildings yourself. Yeah, it's awesome. It's true. It's true. It's just you got to believe you can first, and you got to visualize that uh, and visualize yourself doing it. So, you know, in, in the in a lot of the books that you know you read, at least the ones I've read, it's you know you talk a lot about what value add is about. You know, increasing the rents, adding you know, figuring out ways of adding units to buildings or something along those lines to increase rents. You know, in the book. We, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, figuring out expenses and the different ways of, of doing that. My favorite was the tax appeal. And it was one of the first times I've heard of that, right? So why is that such an important strategy? Or why is that something that you consistently do on a yearly basis for all your properties? Like, t- talk to us a little bit about just, you know, the tax appeal process too. Yeah. So there is uh, obviously investment properties, unlike residential properties for personal uh, residents, is valued based on income stream, um, right? So a residential house is valued based on sales comparison. My neighbor's house sold for this much, therefore mine should be worth this much. 
uh, investment properties that includes both residential and commercial industrial multifamily um, hotels that are valued based on income stream, how much income the property generates for me, because you're not personally all occupying it yourself. So you don't really care to own it unless it adds to your bottom line. So people are want to know how much income stream it's going to generate uh, for me if I buy it. And the goal is to always to maximize that income stream, right? Mm. That's where the cap rate comes into play. Well, when you own a property and the people are not stupid in the market, they know what kind of a cap rates they're building straight at. So how can you get a good deal? Those people out there are not stupid, right? They're not going to sell you a property at a deep discount. So you got to look for ways how you can be the system, how you can pay a fair market value for a property based on the current income stream, but then how you can turn around an increasing income stream and therefore create the expendability, the value add, right? And um, so what is the income stream consists of? It consists of two things, income and expenses, right? And that equals to your net operating income. Uh, so you can either increase your income, raise the rents. So if you find a property that's under rented for $10 a square foot, and you, the market rent are really $18 a square foot, speaking like a retail, for example, right? In a multifamily world, uh, this would be you buy a building that's rented for $600 a month, an apartment building, and uh, you realize that the market rents are really $800 a month. Well, so you can either increase the overall income stream on your building, or you can reduce, reduce expenses. And it's sometimes it's hard to reduce expenses without really um, not sacrificing on your maintenance. and. Uh, upkeep of the building right so that's where a lot of people uh immediately look first but you got to be careful because you don't want your building to slide into a disrepair mm. right because ultimately that's what's gonna if you take care of your buildings eventually your building's gonna take care of you right right so you don't you don't want to uh run them into the ground you want to you know pay for their maintenance um so you got to look at other expense line items and simply just go through your entire uh, profit and loss statement and see what your expenses are and see how you can minimize expenses. And a lot of people don't even think about property taxes because they get a tax bill and they just keep that line item. This is okay. Let's go right. to insurance. Can I get a better quotes on insurance? I see somebody can get me a better insurance premium, right? Can I renegotiate my management fee contract with my management company? Can I, uh, can I hire a cheaper labor to do my maintenance? You know, um, you, you look for all that things, but people rarely pay attention to property taxes. But property taxes is a pretty big expense item, right? So, uh, and but people don't even think about possibility that you can have a lower property tax bill because uh, somebody got a bill in the mail and that it says here's how much I owe um, the county for my property taxes and therefore you know uh, that's how much I have to pay. Uh, but uh, really, that can be challenged, right? And the idea of appealing property taxes really came out of necessity. <laughs> you know, all I uh, think inventions come out of um, adversity, right? And mm. during up to 2008 um, recession, I was just trying to make ends meet, right? Uh, but, uh, lost, uh, you know, uh, most of my real estate portfolio, and it consisted of mostly residential multifamily properties at the time. And, and so I was just doing some general brokerage, uh, trying to again make a uh, make a living. And but again, a lot of things were not trading at all. The market was just kind of a stagnant. So I was looking for other ways. I would have a building, a two million dollar building listed that had a tax value of two million dollars, and we had it listed for half a million dollars. 
Wow. And I would use the property tax value as the highlight. It says, look, the tax value is two million. You can buy it for four ninety nine. You know, it's a great deal. You know, it sold just a couple of years ago for two million dollars. And then it just realized me like, geez, people, this owner, and the property sits in the market would not sell. So it realized me like this property owner uh, is paying taxes on two million dollars, and it's like thirty grand a year on a vacant building. It's it must be very painful. Mm. Right, uh, just the taxes alone, let alone forget the mortgage and other expenses, just the taxes. And obviously, it's not worth two million dollars. So why is he being taxed on two million dollars? So mm. that that kind of a thought process made me think like, well, maybe there is an opportunity here. So what I started doing, I started appealing property taxes for just for third parties and for clients. It's like, hey, listen, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna argue this case in front of the county board of equalization to I'm going to try to reduce your taxes, which is going to cut your bill from 30 grand a year down to maybe 10 grand a year, right? I'm really going to build a case to try to reduce your property taxes. And that and it's going to be free service, right? But whatever I save you, uh, I, want to char- I want to charge basically as my fee 50% of the first year of savings. And then the year two, three, four, depending how often your county reassesses its values. Um, that will be all your savings to keep. I just want fifty mm. percent of first year savings. If I do not do nothing, you're gonna pay thirty grand. Right. If I do something and reduce, then there's the potential that you're gonna pay less than thirty grand. Right. No brainer so, for the client. Yeah, no brainer. So the people, most people again don't even think about it. So we that stuff started doing tax appeals, and then eventually when I get back on my feet and started investing again by practice on my own behalf, uh, you know, it's it's a regular practice that we. Uh, evaluate all of our tax values and uh, try to appeal them, especially during the year, during the reassessment year, because every county reassesses values every, um, usually four, six, or eight years. Um, in some larger markets like, you know, New York or uh, Miami, they do that every year. So there is, there is different ways how you can challenge valuations in those markets, but most of the country, it's usually two, three, four, five, six zero cycles. So that's a, that was a client of yours that was trying to sell this property. You realized that that was a value you could add. And by the way, at the same time, mm-hmm. make some money from. And uh, is that still a big part of City Plat and your organization? Is that still something? No, it's you- not part of a City Plat business uh, because, again, we try to stay focused on you know, uh, buying and investing and developing properties. Got right? it. Uh, we have a management division. We have a, a leasing commercial brokerage division where we mostly lease our own buildings, but they do uh, have some third-party business as well. Um, so, yeah, we don't try to get distracted. However, I do have a different company uh, that's actually headquartered in Chicago. I'm in North Carolina, uh, but we have a, uh, we're trying to roll out a national platform uh, for the, um, property tax appeal. Excellent. Um, it's kind of like an app where anybody can appeal their property taxes uh, from the convenience of their you know, smartphone themselves. So we're trying to automate this process and make it, uh, basically it's like a tech play. Tech play mm. meets real estate. Love uh, where we can deliver uh, this utility, this solution to large quantities of people. What is that? Is that ready for the general public? It, could you it's mention it? It's not ready. We've okay. been under development. We have a team of like 12 uh, software engineers been working on this for the past 18 months. And we probably another 18 months from launching. Uh, once we roll it out, 
we want to uh, be able to offer proxy tax appeal solution nationwide. Love it. Yeah, I think it's such a need. I mean, again, it's you think about people who, you know, maybe it's not that they don't want to do it, but they don't have the time. They don't. Um, they're just organizations who have hundreds of properties and they don't have the manpower or all those things. And you're able to do that. It's not easy to figure it out. So counties don't make it easy (laughs) to appeal the taxes because obviously that's an income stream revenue for them. So it's, uh, it's hard to figure out the process uh, for each county. How do you go about Some are easier than others, but most of them make it pretty difficult. And what we want to do, we want to make it easy. Uh, for people to do it. And also, so if you own hundred buildings in different counties and different cities, every county has its own different regulations and the process and the deadlines and, um, and assessment cycles, right? So trying to figure it out for one property is, you know, pain, painful enough. But if you have a portfolio of a hundred in different markets in different states, uh, that's, uh, that could be a full-time job within itself. No, no doubt. Is, do you, um, any advice for people who are looking to do that with their, you know, portfolio? Um, <clears throat> is it just calling and asking just, Hey, how would I go and fight this? Yeah. Uh, research that or just wait a little bit longer and you'll be able to use a wrap. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you can hire a lot of people just hire attorneys to fight it. Got it. Um, you know, so, uh, but again, it's, uh, reducing your expenses which improves your NOI and therefore your tax value might be lower and perceived value may be lower. But, and while homeowners look at the tax value as a guidance indication whether a home should be worse, investment properties, tax value is really irrelevant. It's all about NOI and income streams. So the lower the value, the actual, the higher the value of the building is, the lower the assessed value. Mm. So because it, uh, it boosts your, and you can also apply for, you know, other ways to reduce taxes. If you have land, agricultural, agricultural land, you can have some tax abatement, um, for agricultural credits. Uh, if you have a historic building and property, you can apply for historic designation, uh, which cuts your property taxes in half, essentially, right? Uh, if you make it a historic landmark, um, uh, but it actually doesn't have to be even historic. It just have to be a contributing structure. It have to have some kind of a maybe architectural significance or community or social significance. So because uh, we've been able to get a landmark historic designation on a not brand new but almost brand new uh, old glass class A office buildings. I read that because in the book. We were, I we, thought that we was were a... able to yeah able to prove it's uh architectural contribution significance yeah it's amazing Therefore, it should be designated as a landmark so yeah don't assume that it's all just historic properties only another one that i thought was really interesting it was actually the first time i was able to read something about it and and actually get a true example i think that's one of the really cool things about the book is that there's some really good examples in there and it's not it's there's some real actual case studies and it's not just you know philosophy on things right and one of the things that was really interesting and i really think that potentially especially in upstate new york where i am a lot of land right a lot of land a lot of just unused land for um you know, that's got a lot of potential. So mm-hmm. one of the things was entitlements. Can, can you kind of explain your, you know, your, your, 
your mindset on entitling land and just how powerful that can be? Uh, well, yeah, it's one of the best ways to create value, equity, uh, quickly is in land, uh, because you take something that maybe is zoned agricultural or could be unzoned or zoned medium density residential, and you simply upzone it to high density residential, right? And therefore you can do more units. So builders, A, whether it's multifamily or single family builders, they would pay you on how many units I can build here. And mm. let's say the going rate is $30,000 per raw lot on the land. Well, if you just double the density by upzoning the property, and now you can, instead of doing 50 lots, you can now do 100 lots. Granted, they're going to be a little bit smaller, but you therefore, in theory, double the value of the property. And usually, you can control land with very little cost out of pocket, right? You can just um, you know, have option consideration or money and long due diligence period, uh, not... You know, people who are selling, trading residential properties obviously expect a quick close in today's age, age uh, day and age. Commercial also fairly relatively quick close, you know, a little bit longer than residential, but typically 90, 120 days, um, average closing uh, for commercial transaction. For land, uh, first of all, we cannot get anything done or approved in less than two years. And so it's not uncommon for a, a typical land closing timeline to be two or three years. Wow. Right. Uh, at least in the markets where we work with, uh, in, uh, you know, it takes, you know, six to nine months to go through the zoning process and another six months to go through second approval process. And then another 120 days to go through construction drawings process. So before you're able to, from the moment you found a piece of land and you, said, okay, this is a good project. I'm going to build my project here. It's going to be two years before you're able to put a shovel in the ground. Mm. You go through all the rezoning, neighborhood meetings, planning committee, city council, <coughs> uh, you know, meet with engineers, the surveys, and all of those, all of those things. Um, so you can typically control a large piece of land with... Um, Nominal consideration, like we oftentimes control a five million dollar track of land for as little as you know ten thousand hmm. uh, dollars. And but then if we during that control period, if we're able to rezone it from you know medium density residential from industrial to multifamily, with the trend we've seen in the last few years, uh, there is a, the multifamily land has been high in demand. And the values have increased from you know. 15, 17, 20,000 dollars per door on both federal land up to 40, 50,000 dollars a door. So if you got a 300 unit apartment site at 50 a door, that's 15 million dollars. So you might buy an old shopping center for 5 million as a shopping center because that's what it's worth. And people would think you would have overpaid for it. But really, you buy it for for land value because it has a lot of parking, right? And you resort it to multifamily. And now the same, and you simply don't do anything physical to the property. You simply turn around and flip the same shopping center. But now as the multifamily pad for $15 million, you make $10 million just on uh, without doing anything physical to the center itself. So that's been, that's what we've been doing a lot of that in the last, you know, three years as multifamily prices have uh, skyrocketed in the Sunbelt uh, states. I love that thinking different, yeah. Nikita. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of 
it's so many people see things one way, right? And, and you want to really be a five tool player. And so having those different techniques and have, having those different skill sets are just a, a game changer for investors. And so, and I love what you said where people would say that, oh, you're crazy for buying it for this much. But in your back of your head, you know that there's a different play that you're implementing. I just think that's great. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, well, real estate, you know, is a big money sport, right? We're not dealing in widgets. We're dealing with millions of dollars, everything we deal with. A lot of people know just one way to buy real estate, basically buy low, sell high, right? To get traditional financing. But in reality, real estate has so many tools, like option agreements, lease option agreements, different first right of refusals, uh, contract for deeds, you know, seller financing, uh, all-inclusive trust deeds, wrap notes. I mean, uh, substitution of collateral. It has about a thousand different tools that you can utilize in real estate. So, especially if you're dealing in highly competitive market, like I'm sure, you know, the entire state of New York is pretty competitive. You know, people know the balance. They're not going to give away their properties for you to utilize the strategy by low so high. Uh, you're going to have to get creative. And well, how do you buy a property? How do you buy a house for $400,000? Sell the same house for $400,000 the very same day, actually. You bought it for four hundred. dollars you sold it for four hundred dollars the same day, which is the market value of the house. And you may, But you make $200,000 yourself in the process. Well, if you know the answer to the question, then you better go and get educated, right? Because that easily done, because that's what you're going to have to know how to do in a highly competitive market where you just simply cannot get profits at discount. So that can be accomplished by a tool known as uh, all-inclusive trusted, i.e. RepNode, right? Uh, you bought it for 400 at 3% cost of funds. Uh, you sold it on the RepNode at you know 7% cost of funds on that spread, that interest spread. Uh, and you bought it at a 3% fix and you sold it at 7%. It's set as a Florida site and index. So your margin can only increase from there on forward. And you made yourself at least $200,000 over the course of the loan. But anyway, you, you need to know all the tools because you never know which tool is going to come into play. When we look at the property and this, some seller might be stuck on the value, right? It says, I want $2 million for my property. And you know, there's no way this property is worth more than a million. And he wants $2 million. He's just crazy. Well, in reality is, if you really want the property, there's going to be a way you're going to figure out how to do it. You just need to use the right tool in your toolbox. The problem is people don't have enough tools in their toolbox. They need to, that's why at CityPlat, we require everybody to read books on a weekly basis. We just had our meeting this morning, and we there's probably in our small team of 20, there is probably over 50 books have been read in the past week. Wow. Right? So if you constantly feed your mind with new tools and new ideas, new, you're going you're gonna to share. That's how you get an edge on your competition. Well, real estate offers about a thousand tools, but people know only a couple, right? Most even seasoned investors we run into, they just know a few ways to do it, traditional ways to do it. But when we look at the property again, we analyze it from every different angle uh, and we just find the right tool uh, to apply to the particular situation. So the owner who wants 2 million, you know, especially if it's a long-term hold. So in the long-term hold, price is the least important part of the equation how much you pay for the property, your monthly cash flow and your monthly payments. 
is the most important component. Mm-hmm. In a short-term flip, of course, the price is most important because you're trying to buy it lower so you can, because you, you intend to flip it in a short period of time for a profit. So you want to buy it as low as possible. But in the long-term fall property, price is the least important part of the equation. So what's better to pay $2 million for the property if I can get principal-only payments fixed at uh, $4,000 a month until the loan is fully amortized with 98% owner financing? Or would I be better off paying a million dollars for the property if I have to go get a traditional bank loan, 15-year amortization at 7% interest and put 30% down? Right. So if you don't know that math, you know, you should do some math because you'll figure out that actually you'll be better off paying $2 million if you can get a basically 0% interest loan, uh, principal only loan with fixed payments of 4,000 a month. And because eventually it's going to be paid off, but you are after cash flow, right? Actually, I can probably pay $4 million for the property. You know what, <laughs> right. Mr. Seller? Uh, yeah, I know you want two, but I'm actually going to offer you $3 million, but here's the terms that I would like. You can have your price as long as you can get my terms. So, um, again, it's, uh, it's nothing is black and white with real estate. If there's always different ways to look at things and depending on what your objectives and goals are with the property. I love that. I think that's such an aha moment for me. And I think if anybody's listening, they should go back and re-listen to that because Nikita really just spells it out where it's, it's not emotional. Like with residential, a lot of it's very emotional in re- in commercial. It's, it's math and it's knowing the strategies and it's making sure that you stay up on those strategies. So um, that's actually to my next question in, in regards to strategy and decision. Do you have a formula Nikita that you use, or do you have like a process you use when you do make a decision, whether it's for a deal or whether it's a business decision deep, is it something where maybe it takes some time to really think about it? Are you a quick decision maker? Like, what, what, what's your formula for making decisions? Uh, so, first of all, yeah, I'm very a quick decision maker, for sure. But the formula, it's usually just uh, intuition. Mm. You, just, you just go with the gut feeling. Uh, I mean, now, I mean, we, as we grow, we get more formalized. As we scale, our portfolio grows. We have in-house underwriters who I don't even look and underwrite my own deals anymore. I just look at the property. It looks like the property I want to, I like, and we send it to our team. They underwrite it. Um, they look at it the same way the banks will underwrite it. And they tell me says, yes, it is where we need to buy this ad for it to make sense in cash flow. Uh, but most often when I make a decision to move forward or not is, uh, again, it's based on gut feeling, you know, deal could be, and, and keep in mind, we have, you know, a lot of people who send us deals daily. Mm-hmm. So uh, my entire day can be filled looking at deals all day long because people bring opportunities because we, we partner with people, right? They, hey, if you bring me a deal, uh, we'll let you roll in your commission into the deal, right? Or we, uh, if there is no commission, then we'll, we'll just put you in a deal if you bring us a good deal, you know, because we want you to bring more deals to us. So we have people bring us deals all day long. Of course, a lot of them are trash, but, you know, there's some good ones out there. Uh, so, but usually you just go with a good feeling. Deal could be great on paper, but just something doesn't feel right. And, uh, from the experience, and every time I bought the building where I had not the right feeling about it, I regretted it. And therefore I just usually go with the gut feeling. Go with the gut feeling. Now let's talk a little bit about that for just a second. Now you said, you know, buying some buildings that you had a bad feeling about and they, they didn't turn out great. Is, do you remember a bad decision that you made that 
you were able to learn something really big from like is there, is there a bad <laughs> <Yes>. decision yeah <laughs> very quickly many, many. <laughs> yes many and uh, it's usually uh, most of the decisions i've made had to do with diversifying from away from real estate mm. you know, early on like what kind of got me in trouble during the 2008 recession is um i got that Overall confident and I started diversifying because I've heard people that's what you're supposed to do, diversify. So I started diversifying away from real estate and I had a, a nightclub, a laundromat and invested in some restaurants and started just not paying attention to my core business, but diversifying all these other retail businesses. And that's, and I've lost money pretty much on every single one of them. Mm. And it only lost money there, but it's also um, brought down my real estate. Um, and hurt me in that sector. And then sometime goes by again, that was 2008, 2009. And I kind of, I told myself at that time, if I ever recover, you know, I'll never diversify from real estate again. And of course, 10 years and what happens is we forget our own promises. So 10 years goes by and we're back to things that, you know, great. And we're 2017, 2018 timeline. And I said, okay, I'm, you know, feel confident and comfortable again with life. I'm going to diversify again. Uh, <laughs> but again, I'm not going to go into retail business because that's just too much work. And no more nightclubs, but, at least. Yes, no. So I said, I'm going to buy serious businesses. So I invested in a bank uh, where I was promised a board seat on a startup bank in Washington, D.C. I bought a coal mine in West Virginia and I bought a title insurance company uh, in six states. So I said, this is like, Serious businesses, this is not your retail restaurant type of business um, or nightclub, you know. And again, if you, unless you run them yourself, at least with me, I don't know how those, you know, people in the Shark Tank, they do it where they have 300 companies. Uh, I concluded for me, it just doesn't work because everything, like the failure rate of banks is probably less than 1%. Well, guess what? The bank I invested in happened to be that 1%. Oh, gosh. And again, the failure rate for insur- title insurance companies also very, very little. Uh, but again, if you, unless you manage that business yourself and you're involved in its operations, uh, I concluded that it's just not going to work because people are going to steal from you. People are just, uh, you need to be, you need to have boots on the ground, right? So for me, it was supposed to be passive investments. And again, I've just lost so much money. I'm thinking that I could have that money invested in real estate. You know, I would be so much better off, but I'm taking good money from real estate and investing in for this business I know nothing about. I just, just like throwing money to, uh, into, you know, to dumpster. It's just stupid. So now I get it. For me, it was two, two tries <laughs> diversification into different periods of life. And the second time didn't take me, oh, didn't invite me out like the first one did, but uh, it definitely hurt, you know. So uh, now I have made, declaration problems that no matter how good the idea is or how you know sweet the pie is i'm just not going to diversify away from real estate real estate has so many different aspects you can do industrial multifamily you can diversify within real estate you know if you if you're bored and want to have fun with something new it's okay just as long as it has to do with real estate no uh, auxiliary businesses uh so for me that was bad decisions uh real estate itself uh, the only bad decisions I can think of is selling real estate. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I don't think I've regretted buying. I mean, there is, I, I bought some bad properties, but I still don't regret buying them. Uh, I love what you said, Nikita, in the book. 
Where you said sell the buildings, keep the land if you do have to sell. Yes, to have to sell, you know, you know, build down as soon they have to be married forever more. You know, building and land can be divorced and separated. Mm. Mm. Let go of the building if you want to sell the building, right? If it gives you too much maintenance headaches. But if it's in good infill location, you try to keep the land under the building because that's, you know, put it on a 99-year ground place and that's a forever income. Uh, now, would you recommend, because I've heard this a few times for, for people that, um, you know, enjoy it a lot. Let's say I, I heard this a few times from different people. If they could go back, if they had to start over, they would become a broker. Do you, do you really recommend that role for people? Like, yeah, obviously that's something that you did. Is that something that, you know, even if you had to go back, you would do it again? So, uh, so I started out as an investor. Uh, I got my license, I think in 2006, and I started real estate in 2004. Um, but I haven't really practiced it until 2010, 11. So I had my license just for education purposes, but I didn't practice because I always viewed myself as an investor. And I was doing a lot of house flips, right? I would go and find it. And that's a very competitive, brutal world to be trying to flip houses, right? Renovate houses. And if I had to do it over again, I would bypass that and do commercial brokerage instead. Because when I was flipping houses in my late teens or early 20s, I would work so hard to find a deal where I can buy a house for 150000 and then have to get money because I had no credit, good or bad. I just simply had no credit. So I had to find investors, get raise the money, uh, expensive money to buy the property and buy the, and re- renovate it. And then... You know, but 50 units renovated, try to sell it for, you know, 250 pay commissions. And then the day, and then if it sits in the market, I pay, I pay, I have to worry about builders, risk insurance, contractors, staff, like vandalists, you know, mortgage, mortgage payments. If it sits in the market except three months, you know, it's really, really painful because you, when you, you know, trying to survive in this business. Um, so at the end of the day, if everything goes right, in perfect center, you make 30 grand profit. Right, and it's a year of work and carrying the cash flow versus as a commercial broker, you can lease a small building for let's say 1.5 million. Don't even get both sides, just get one side of the commission 3%, 50 grand. And you make 50 grand if it's in the market extra two months. Well, guess what? Market is slow because you're not the one who paying mortgage payments, right? Right. Of course, you try to sell it as quickly as possible for the owner, but you're not feeling the pain. And if you look at the average time invested, being a commercial broker, I mean, to make 50 grand, I might have four hours in a deal versus when I was trying to buy, renovate, look at the finishes, meet with contractors, do the, all the bidding, and it takes nine months of time. And I make 30 grand at the end of the day after nine months of work. Well, my, you know, I might have had 300 hours, you know, in the project. No doubt. No doubt. So, yeah. So you make a hundred dollars an hour versus you make $12,000 an hour, you know, big difference. So I would recommend doing commercial brokerage, especially because the Harvard business school did a study and they looked at all different professions, right? And said, okay, uh, and they analyzed all the different professions based on capitalization requirements, education requirements, office-based requirements, um, you know, startup, you know, requirements. They put it all in a blender 
And what came out of it is number one best profession to be in, guess what? Real estate sales. Because for 400 bucks and four weeks of classes, you can have your real estate license, right? right. In most states. Yep. And it's absolutely nothing for residential real estate brokers to sell eight to 10 houses a year and make over $100,000. Absolutely nothing. I mean, that's average bottom line. And if you go to a residential broker, you're going to make, you know, you're going to sell 30, 40 houses a year, you're going to make yourself, you know, three, 400 grand. And commercial is the same thing, but it's just bigger numbers. It's a little bit uh, longer to get going because you have to build up your, you know, pipeline and contacts and things like that. But once you get going, it's, uh, I mean, we have, it's a common thing that, you know, uh, for common brokers to sell eight to 10 properties a year and make half a million dollars. And if you're a good commercial broker, you're going to sell 30, 40 buildings a year and make yourself two, three, four million dollars in commissions, right? As commercial brokers. So why waste all that energy? Take the risk, take on hard money loans, worry about insurance, you know, for, you know, construction projects, uh, to make, you know, to flip houses when you can have zero risk involved and, you know, be a commercial broker and make, you know, a million to $2 million a year. It's still earning, working for dollars, right? Because um, you have to, you know, kill every time to eat. Uh, so you, as long as you don't spend and uh, squander the money that you make, uh, commercial brokerage is a great way to get started. But as long as, again, you, you invest that money, because the only way to build wealth over time is by owning properties over an extended period of time, right? You cannot create wealth by just making a million or two million a year selling buildings. If you don't invest it, it's, the, the money is going to become worthless. It's going to evaporate or you're going to end up spending it. So you always have to invest in it and then and hold on to the properties long term. That's the only way to build wealth. So as long as you do that, then it's a pretty much easy formula to building wealth. And then also being a broker, you have the ability with your organization, you get to look at these deals and maybe if even if you're managing them, you get potentially maybe first right at buying some of these buildings. Is that fair to say? Or um, Possibly if you have a relationship with you know, your clients, if, you, if that's what you do with commercial brokerage and, and they decide to sell, let's say you can do the releasing and they decide to sell one day, or of course you're gonna be in front of their mind. That, hey, if you ever wanna decide to sell this building, I would love an opportunity to buy the building from you. Yeah, so I don't do brokerage myself anymore. Right. But we only have a brokerage company here. Right. Flood, but um, I focus most of my time on investing now. But again, uh, brokerage is what saved my bacon. You know, after it's an eight recession, so I respect brokers. And I respect the work they do and the, you know, the hustle that they go through. And I definitely recommend it to anyone who is getting started or who is trying to get on their feet or recover from whatever downturn you might have done. Because again, it's, uh, you can make more in brokers than the biggest CEO in America. Yeah, I love, I love it. I love it. And I want to get to the speed round because I want to be very cognizant of your time. Um, and I really appreciate Nikita, you coming on here. This has been awesome. Very insightful, very informative. So what are the, um, I guess I was going to ask you in regards to the books 
that you'd recommend, maybe like the last book you recommend or the most recent book you recommend. Um, but you just mentioned that your team is reading, you know, 50 books a week. So out of those books recently, was, has there been three that have just been like really super good or helpful for your team and for yourself? And just I have um, so many books that are just amazing and awesome. One that came to mind uh, because we just talked about it is a uh, compound effect. Definitely. So you're not going to see results. Uh, if you do something, you go to the gym, you know, five days a week, you might, you know, probably not going to see results in even in three months. Right. So it's easy to get discouraged, but I promise you, if you do that exercise for consistently three years, you take a picture of yourself before and after, you're going to see a big difference in how you look in the mirror. Right. So the same thing with doing small things in business, you know, you, you're feeding your brain. You might get no ideas out of the books, but you keep reading weekly, right? And I promise you, you're going to be a different person three years from now if you keep feeding your brain with positive stimuli uh, over an extended period of time. There's nothing more common than overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in three years. So, because that's where the compound effect kicks in. So that's definitely one of my uh, favorite books. I like the book Go-Giver. You know, there's go-getters and there's uh, go-givers. And uh, we have a go-giver mentality. So you just always got to be willing to share. And uh, You're proving it right back. now. You're, you're yes. proving it right now. So we, we... It always comes back to you tenfold. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a couple of books on um, just uh, expanding your mind and thinking big. I like the Trump's book, uh, Think Big and Kick-Ass. Is he co-authored it was one other guy uh, who narrates it, but it's uh, definitely uh, one of my uh, favorite books as well. I uh, think Beacon Kick Ass by Trump. I love it. Haven't read those, so I will. I, I I love you saying the compound effect because as somebody who is in that journey currently, from going from residential, you know we we you know we have like five flips going on right now. We feel broke. <laughs> Because, you know, we're, we got one that's closing and then you got four you're working on and it's, it's brutal world. Uh, and as we're transitioning, you know, we're, you know, our claim to fame here, Nikita, my partner, Matt and I is we're just, we cold call, we market, we're texting, we're mailing, we're doing all those things. Right. And we're building up a really great list of people to follow up with and we're following up and we like that. And, um, just you saying that, though, of, listen, it's, it takes some time. It's, it, you just compound. It's, it's almost like the compounding pounding. You just got to keep pounding yeah, at it. That right. really helped me. Yeah. The, the only uh, failure is to quit, right? Or, well, or not try, right? But if you're trying to keep them doing it, again, you might see little progress, but if you just stick with it, everybody you've ever read about was extremely successful. Uh, I would tell you, everybody gets knocked down, right? Everybody gets knocked down. The key is to just get back up. So you just got to keep going at it. And if you don't quit, then eventually you're going to succeed. The key is not quitting. I love it. I'm going to end it there. I think that was freaking brilliant. I appreciate you, Nikita, for coming on here. Thanks for sharing your journey. And uh, for everybody listening, this is my journey of going from residential to commercial. Anyone that's listening and is going through that journey as well, Follow along, keep listening, because I have juggernauts in the game like Nikita on to share the wisdom. Nikita, thanks again, buddy. I appreciate Thank you. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Marty Grizzani Show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us an honest rating and review. If you're on Spotify, make sure you follow us for weekly episodes.